This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. We've been going through, I don't even want to call it a series, because Eric Ludy doesn't really know how to do series the way that, that I'm supposed to. Uh, and yet I've been in a series, but it's an accidental series, or I should say something that God is continuing to just do every week. And this message is going to be a part of that as well. But it's, I don't know, four or five weeks ago, we met as pastors before uh, the service. We always meet over and pray in, in our other building, the East End. And when we were meeting, I said, I have such a burden on my soul. It's like I see it so clearly. I know what we need to be as a church. We need to be a praying, confessing church. We need to be a praying and confessing church, not one or the other, uh, and not just esteeming prayer and not doing it, not just esteeming the confession, using this mouth to speak forth in this world, in this generation, the truths of Jesus Christ, but to actually do it. A lot of people wait for me to do the speaking for them. And that's very common in modern Christianity. It's passivity. It's like, oh yeah, well, just come to church and someone else will speak it to you as opposed to us recognizing that we are responsible as the saints of God to allow this tongue to be overtaken by the Holy Spirit and to let him speak. There is a truth that will not be heard in this generation unless we speak it. And so as a result, there's a growing weight upon my soul to recognize what time in which we live. We live in a culture in which Christianity is being continually pressed into silence. And if you speak, that's when you get into trouble. You can live your Christianity as long as you just keep your trap shut. You know, I don't want to hear about all your views about Jesus being the only way, Jesus being God. Oh, I'm a sinner. I need to repent. Yeah, yeah, that's for yesteryear. We've moved past that, have we? There is still only one means of salvation, and that means is Jesus Christ. If you don't say it, they don't hear it. But the question is, it's, it's socially inappropriate in America now to do the preaching. You know that even what I'm doing right now, the preaching, you hear my voice sort of rise a little, and some of you are like, oh, is he allowed to do that? <laughs> Technically, according to social etiquette, I'm not. However, throw social etiquette to the wind, I'm after your soul. I am on a mission, and you should be too. I am interested in every single one of you being built strong for the kingdom of heaven so that you wouldn't just come back next week and fill a seat. What good is that? But that you would go out and you would pursue a soul. This is burning a hole inside of me. And so as we enter into this message today, I want you to realize it's a continuation of something. We have been meeting I remember it was quite a few weeks ago uh, now that I finished a message and I said, I don't know what we need to do as a follow-up, but let's meet on Tuesday night. Let's start confessing with this tongue, our sin, our faith, and let's also begin to pray together as a body. You know, because we, we have a time of prayer, but 
You know, it's always the few that come to it. You know, you get the handful of people that really feel called to prayer, and the rest of us sort of lean on them to do the praying in the church. But on Tuesday night of that, you know, the upcoming Tuesday after that, this whole building was filled with people that were saying, we're ready. And we had families, like kids. And we went on, I think that first one was like three, three and a half hours. I mean, it was extraordinary. I think every single one of us was like, what is this? What, what, what was that? And so then I don't like to formulize things. I don't want to create, I was like, all right, every Tuesday night we're going to uh, have a revival meeting. You know, one of those types of things. I don't want to try and force the Holy Spirit to do something. And yet we felt compelled to have the next Tuesday night. So the place was filled and guess what? It was equally as beautiful, if not more so. It's last Tuesday, the same thing. It's like people are driving hours just for Tuesday night to come and we have no idea what we're doing. It's like, yeah, no plan, we're just uh, here. And yet we're all here with the same purpose, and that is we need more of God. You see, we represent, in a room like this, the serious Christians. You wouldn't be showing up at a church like this to hear a loud mouth like this if you weren't first and foremost saying, all right, I want it. So we're already in. For the most part, I know that not all, some of you were dragged here. And you're like, hey, hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> However, we represent a version of Christianity in this generation that says, I want the real thing and I don't care what it costs me. And then we pause and we say, well, I mean, what do, what do I mean by that, though? You see, most of us maybe are willing to be laughed at. You know, that's hard. But maybe we're willing to consider that. But to lose our life, I don't know, let us think a little longer. We need to get past the thinking and get to the decision that this will cost us our life instead of messing around with the territory of like, well, what if? We need to recognize that it has always cost true Christianity its life to stand up and pursue the souls of those around it. We are not here to passively make our way through our life, somehow just make it to the other end and graduate into heaven. It's like we made it without a scuff on us. If you don't have a scuff on you, by the time you reach heaven, you didn't live this life right when you were down here. Let's get scuffed up. We have a job to do, and it's not to just somehow get a good career and get a good job and raise kids to go off and do the same. It's to lay down our life that this world would see Jesus Christ. You guys ready for this message? I've been ready to give it for a long time. Relentless love. A study in the bold evangelistic pursuit of lost souls. By the way, I am so ill-equipped for this message. I know I may look like a bold preacher of the gospel right now as I'm standing before you. However, it's one thing to preach to you right here. It's a whole other thing to come up to the guy in Starbucks who's busy with his headphones on and say, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, he's like, yes? I just want to ask you some questions about your soul. You see, this world is caught up in devices that has their headphones on. It is in meetings constantly. You go out into this world and you're looking for someone to look you in the eye and say, please, could you tell me about Jesus? You don't run into that. You have to pursue. But to pursue means to violate social norms. And yet I'm here to tell you, love must violate the social norm. I am ill-equipped to teach you in this. 
because I am such a student of social norms. I know what is honorable and appropriate in situations and I can teach you about it. No, in this situation, you leave them alone. In this situation, we just nod and we say hi. And hopefully through that hi, they will interpret the love of Jesus. And they will say, oh, I know I'm loved by Jesus. Now I understand the gospel. That Christian said hi to me. You see, I know all of these thoughts and I've practiced them for years, but God is doing something. He is pressing me beyond what I really want him to be, but at the same time, I do want him to be pressing me in these directions. My dream of being surrounded by the love army. So I have a dream quite a few years ago. This is a long time ago. What's funny is, uh, you know, I remember that, that scripture, old men will dream dreams. I, I, I feel like I must become an old man because I've brought up in this past week, I think about four different times, like, yeah, I had a dream once. It's like, oh, great. It, yeah, I'm not one of those guys that likes to talk about dreams or even has a lot of profound dreams. I have a lot of dreams, but usually they're ridiculous dreams. And so I, I'm, you know, brushing my teeth in the morning. I tell Leslie, yeah, I had a dream last night. And she goes, oh, tell me about it. Uh, and so I tell her about it, and she looks at me like, what, what, what goes on inside of your subconscious? I'm like, I don't know. And so usually they're laugh out loud. Leslie and I have a great laugh about it. But then there are these other dreams that just have something to them. And they, they emblaze themselves upon my mind. This is one of them. And I don't even know how to describe it, but it was this love ministry. That was like, I don't even know what it was called. I want to say Love, Inc. But it was like this love ministry. And I even remember when I even heard their name, I'm like, I'm like, oh, great. Uh, you know, love. It just sounds sappy. You know, the world has taken that word hostage. But this group, and I was a Christian. Even in the dream, I was a Christian. But I wasn't a Christian like these people were. They saw me and they pursued me. They went after me. They followed me around. They looked for any way that they could serve me. They were constantly speaking life into my soul. And I remember even in the dream being so moved by whatever this was. And I don't remember all the details. I just remember the after effects. Because the after effects, I woke up, and this was my thought. I woke up thinking that is the way the church should be. Relentless and untiring in its love. You see, everything about the dream violated social propriety. These people overstep their bounds, okay? That is not how you're supposed to do things, okay? When someone folds their arms, what does that say? Leave me alone. These people come up and say, why are your arms folded? Could I give you a hug? It's like, oh, you don't do that. The confession of a modern-day American pastor. Uh, that's me. I feel I'm in an emaciated, that means very thin and skinny, picture of what the robust and relentless Christian ought to be. I do not want you looking at me during this message and saying, yeah, I want to be like that. I don't really want you to just be like this. I want us to aim beyond what I have yet found. I want us to aim in a direction that is beyond what I have practiced up to this point. That's what's hard about this message is I always like to have deep practice of something. And then I come to you and I say, follow me as I follow Christ. Instead, it's like, sort of, don't follow me yet. Follow Christ, but I'm still trying to figure out how to follow Christ in this area. No, it's not as powerful. I am deeply convicted that I have not loved the lost as I should. Now, that is actually just a normal statement probably from every single one of our souls. I have not loved the lost as I should. 
And yet, I feel that my confession of it needs to sound a little more stark and sharp. Because we could all say that. Everyone feels bad about their prayer life, and everyone feels bad about how much they have cared for the lost, the dying around them. They feel like they're lacking the heart of God. Well, even if you have the heart of God, we still fall short of it, and so we still feel bad that we need more of it. That's normal. But I'm saying that I really do not feel that even in my ministry, I have loved the lost as I should. I run a mission society. If anyone should get credit for training people to go out, I mean, I should get some. And yet I have been so deeply convicted over the past few weeks of saying, I don't know if I'm even on the Richter scale. Richter scale is how we measure like earthquakes. I think it's like, bleep. It's like trying to get on the Richter scale of at any level of givenness to this issue. I remember William Booth saying that if he could finish up his discipleship of his, his men and women, this is Salvation Army's early days, that he would hang them over the pit of hell for a day and let them hear the screams. He said that would do it. That would get them ready to re- remember always why they're here on this earth. I... I, don't, I mean, I've said that quote many times. However, I think God is acquainting me with something at a deeper level, and I feel like a little kindergartner, maybe preschooler, with these truths. They're like, have I ever done this, truly? I have not agonized over the thought of their imminent departure into the fires of an eternal hell. I have not allowed God's burden to fully consume me and to move me to desperate action. I am convicted that my life supplies a pattern to others for bold proclamation amongst the believing ones, and for remaining silent amongst the unbelieving ones. So I've just been pondering, if you followed my life around every day, what would you see? Well, you'd see consistency. I do live what I preach. I do. However, do I always preach in every situation when I could? You see, there's a lot of work I need to get done. I have to write a sermon. If I'm in the middle of a sermon, and there's a needy soul over there, I may see them across the room, but if I leave my sermon, my sermon won't be prepared. What about all my writing that I need to do? If I stop that to go reach that soul, and so what could I easily do? I could justify that I'm going to reach someone in and through this means instead of that means. And what God is showing me is that, Eric, do not put priority on one or the other. I want you to allow me to lead you, and I am going to start choosing to show you in different situations. You leave that sermon to me. You get up and you go to that person. In other words, this is how I feel we as the body of Christ have to be willing to, instead of justifying our silence, I'll do my bold proclaiming when people are ready to hear it. That guy doesn't even want to hear it. He has his arms folded right now. That man needs to hear it. And if I don't say it, who am I thinking will say it to him? I recognize my need for a baptism of Christ's love. And I wish to be the first among us today to confess my need for something far more than what I currently possess in my soul. Hey, you. Yeah, you, Eric. Go. Mark 16, 15, written to Eric Ludi. And he said unto Eric Ludi, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Oh. Now, I know Jesus says that, but that's to us as a body, and we all have our roles in the body. That's true. It is true. You know that I have a role that I need to play, and it doesn't do me any good to be discontent in my role and to feel like it'd be more spiritual to be in North Korea right now when God wants me in Windsor, Colorado, speaking to you. That said, 
This is still a commission that must weigh upon my soul in every situation. Go you into all Windsor, Eric. See, I am here. Go you into all Windsor. That doesn't mean just go you into the chapel at Ellerslie. Go you into all Windsor. Does everyone in Windsor yet know the gospel? Just Windsor, diddly squat little town in the United States of America, which is one country out of all the countries. And this is where I've been assigned. This is my post. But do they all know Jesus Christ here? Go you therefore, Eric Ludi, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. And the Lord said unto Eric Ludi, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you, Eric Ludi. You stick your own name in there. It's like it makes it way too personal. I want to stick your name in there. See, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm called to preach uh, this morning, but, you know, the highways and hedges, someone needs to go out to them. And so one of you feels called. I know it. How about all of us? Stick your name in there. What if, what if your name got stuck in that? Even so, I send you. The same way Jesus was sent. How was he sent? Was he sent just to preach inside of a little temple? He went and he sought out the cause that he knew not. He went to seek and save that which was lost. Seek and save it. So the way that he was sent, so you are sent. The outbreak of slow rot. A slow rot actually could be a real disease. I don't know. I didn't even look it up. I probably should have. But I came up with a disease. Okay, I invented it. Uh, it's called slow rot. Doesn't it sound terrible? That's right, it's supposed to. Okay, if it sounded nice, it wouldn't quite make my point. Slow rot is terrible. So there's an outbreak of slow rot. It's, it's consumed our entire world. I mean, are, is anyone going to survive? The key terms in our little story of the outbreak of slow rot. First, we have the suburb of destruction. So this is the district under the governance of Mayor McCobb on that side of the line. It's like, oh, them. Okay, so there's a line, and it's a suburb of destruction over here. And the mayor is, uh, is a bad guy. Okay, you probably know him as like Lucifer, Beelzebub, Satan, the devil, the serpent. He has many names. But he rules in this territory. So it's on that side of the line under the canopy of darkness. There's no light there. So it's under a canopy of darkness where every single person is slowly dying from slow rot. You say, who would want to live there? It's a good question. Why would anyone want to live there? Then we have the suburb of salvation, the district under the governance of King Christ on the other side of the line. So there's like two suburbs, there's two divisions in the full light of the Son of God. So here there's no darkness, there's light where every single person is made whole and healthy through the lone cure. So if there was a cure and there was a suburb of light, who in their right mind would ever live in the suburb of darkness under the mayor macabre? I mean, that is just grisly disgusting. Who in the world would submit to that? Only those who don't know that there is a suburb of light and that there is a cure. And so we go, well, what's their problem? Why don't they just wake up? and realize that there's another place that they could be living. Well, it's because those in the suburb of salvation who have been assigned the task of going into the suburb of darkness 
and communicating the fact that they are dying of slow rot and there is a cure. If they don't do it, well then how will anyone ever awaken to the fact that they aren't supposed to be here? That they actually have been set free from the evil rulership of Mayor Makov and that they could, in fact, leave it. And that they could enter the suburb of salvation where there is light, where there's health, where there's wholeness. Slow rot. I'm going to introduce you to this disease that I made up. It's a disease that always leads to a slow, miserable, painful death. The rot weevil, see, this goes back to my message on uh, the bull weevil. I gave a message called the bull of peanuts. So uh, this is sort of for Hudson's sake. He's really interested in the bull weevil now after that. So we call it the rot weevil. If I gave a close-up picture of the bull weevil, really disgusting creature. This is the rot weevil, even more disgusting than the bull weevil. The rot weevil hatches an egg at the uttermost point of the great cardiac vein near the apex of the human heart. So if we had a human heart here, it's, the, it's right near the, the apex of it. So it's like, it's really going to get into the entire bloodstream, basically. It feeds on human blood and slowly grows, eating away the life of the host. Eesh. Could you imagine having that, the rot weevil, hatching an egg inside of you? And now it starts feeding on your life. Because that's to the Hebrew blood is life. And it just starts eating away at you. So the rot weevil's secret is its numbing agent that it injects into the heart tissue of its host prior to devouring the tissue. Here's what's amazing about slow rot. Those that are suffering from it oftentimes don't realize they're suffering from it. They don't realize that there's this creature that is literally eating away their life and they don't feel it. Why? Well, this rot weevil is designed with like this little thing that goes and sticks itself into your heart tissue and numbs it. And then it eats it up. And so as a result, you don't realize that you're being eaten alive by the rot weevil. The whole while, you're dying, and you're happy, going on with your life. You're living in the suburb of darkness and destruction, and yet you don't even recognize that you're dying. So the rot weevil's secret is this numbing agent that it injects into the heart tissue of its host prior to devouring the tissue. Therefore, the human is wholly unaware of the horrible creature eating away its insides. After the rot weevil increases to the size of a baseball, you see, this creature keeps getting bigger and bigger. It becomes harder to hide, and the same thing is going to happen in your life. See, the rot weevil is the power of sin. It's the control of the flesh in your life. And at first, you don't recognize that it has a dangerous, destructive effect upon your life. And so you're happy. There's a pleasure of sin for a season, but when it gets to a certain size, like the size of a baseball, could you imagine having a creature that disgusting, the size of a baseball within your heart? Yeah, it'd, be, it'd be pretty noticeable at a certain point in time. And that's exactly what happens with sin. Your life is falling apart. Your life is just a wreck. And suddenly you begin to awaken to the fact that, whoa, I have a problem. You see, what happens is, it begins to be noticed by the human due to the fact that the pain of the weevil's feasting is greater than the power of the weevil's numbing agent. So now, though the weevil is still numbing, the pain of its eating your, your insides uh, out is actually more painful than the numbing agent can cover. And now suddenly sin, or the power of sin, is beginning to show itself in your life. From this point till death, the human suffers in abject misery because there's no more numbing agent. Pleasure doesn't curb it anymore. No longer does getting drunk help. No longer does the drug help you. No longer does sexual fancy take the pain away. 
The rot weevil has gotten so big in your life that now all you have to look forward to is misery and more of it. That is, oh, this is background movie score. It's with the drums. That is, unless the lone cure for slow rot is brought. The lone cure. It's called a blood transfusion. You see, the rot weevil eats on, we could call it old blood. Your old life, it feeds off of it. And as long as you remain an old man, that's the term that Paul uses, the old man, uh, then it has something to feast on. So what you need is a blood transfusion. You see, this is what the cross has accomplished. So the commission is to come to the hospital on this side of the line. There is actually a hospital in the suburb of Salvation that has been laid out, built, and constructed just for such a circumstance. But you must come to the hospital on this side of the line. You must submit to the great physician and let him supply you the new blood for your body. It's called new life. However, to receive that new life, you must submit to the physician. You must trust him. You must cross that line and leave behind an old life and say, I need a new life, and I know the only way to get it is through his blood. And so that great physician gives you his blood in exchange for yours. What happens to yours? It needs to be pressed out. Your old life must be forsaken. Your old blood must be forsaken. This is the secret to the rot weevil. So you lie down and yield to his tender yet firm salvation. He will place his own life within your body and you must allow your old blood, your old life, to exit. When his life comes in, the rot weevil will be driven out. Think about this. The rot weevil only has life inside that old blood. What does it feast on? The old life. In other words, it has nothing to feed it anymore. Not only has it been pressed out with the new blood coming in, but now even if it tried to hatch its eggs inside of you, which many of you have recognized that it will still try and do even after you come to Christ. Did you know that if you live in the life of Jesus, that that rot weevil, those little eggs, have nothing to feed on anymore? Because they can't feed on Christ's life. They only feed on the old life. So when his life comes in, the rot weevil will be driven out and all future rot weevil eggs will have no old blood to feed on and grow. Such is the power of the gospel message that we bear. Two forms of pain. When I've talked about pain, pain is a very interesting thing in the Christian life and a very important thing for us to have a mind around. I'm not, this message isn't on pain. However, I want to introduce you to the basic concept that there are two kinds of pain. There is pain that comes from the power of sin. There is pain that is inflicted as a result of an enemy and the erosion of sin in our world. And there's also a pain that God actually issues. In other words, pain isn't in and of itself a bad thing. It's where it's coming from. And so when the enemy wields pain, he wields it through abuse, through harshness, through belittlement, torture. I mean, he has his means, okay? He has his, all his devices, that he wields pain in the soul. God wields pain. However, God's pain is very different. It always brings life. And so therefore, whenever you submit yourself to God, a God correction, for instance, like a little discipline on the backside. You know, a little discipline on the backside may smart. It may have a pain to it, but guess what? It frees the conscience. And it actually sets us free. It corrects us from an, a wrong course. And so God pain actually brings life, whereas devil pain brings death. And so we need to recognize the two and the, the distinction. But one of the things I oftentimes say to Ellerslie students is let's look at uh, 
we've been in the suburb, I don't use the term suburb of destruction, but let's call it a concentration camp. We are in the suburb of darkness. We're growing up. We don't even recognize that we're there. But one day, whatever has happened, somehow the light of the gospel has shined into your soul and you recognize your chains for the first time. You recognize in this case, in this illustration, the rot weevil is actually overtaking your life. And you begin to cry out, God, God, what must I do to be saved from this? And you have turned unto Jesus and you have been set free from the concentration camp. You see, evil Mayor Micob cannot control you anymore the moment you turn to your greater master, to Jesus Christ. And so when you were here in this concentration camp, you were under evil enemy pain. And so your life was producing the fruit of it. It led to despair. It led to depression. It led to fear and anxiety. Those are the results of this concentration camp. But Jesus Christ has set us free. And where does he bring us? A lot of us have this notion that he brings us to some island in the Caribbean with coconuts falling on our head. And our great form of suffering is the coconuts, you know, that are falling. And so what we think is that God is wanting to fan us for the rest of our existence on earth and just say, oh, you just lay down, you just go to sleep, you know, you're saved now. However, what we've come into is not a concentration camp. It's a boot camp. God wants to build us and train us for a purpose. You see, he hasn't just saved you so he can get you to heaven. He saved you to be his body to be his hands and his feet, to be his tongue, to be his eyes, to be his ears, to be his heart in this world. But he must train you, so he brings you into boot camp. By the way, anyone who's gone through boot camp would readily acknowledge it's not that easy. It's work. It's painful. But it's a different sort of pain than concentration camp pain. It's a pain that builds. When you have weights and you're lifting weights, when you increase the weight, there's a pain. That lactic acid is flooding into the muscle, and your muscle is like, ah, And yet when you push through that, what happens? You become stronger. That's how God builds us. God has set us free from that which leads to despair and death and brought us into his boot camp so that he can build us. For what? For What's he building us for? So that we can flex in front of each other and in front of the mirror and go, yeah, look what you did, God. Listen to this. This is very important in your spiritual life. So that you could cross that line And you could go into that concentration camp and begin to break the shackles that hold people down to see them set free to go into boot camp. To do what? To do the same. We are meant to be set free by Jesus, to be built strong, to then give up our life to see other people set free. It's called Christianity. It's just very opposite of the way we think of Christianity in America. So the three theaters of suffering, we have the concentration camp, and then we have the boot camp, and then I want you to recognize there's a difference between a concentration camp and a field of battle. When you enter back into that territory of darkness where the lost souls are, you're not going in to submit to the enemy and say, oh, abuse me again. No, you're going in with all the weaponry of heaven to tear down enemy strongholds and to see men and women set free. Uh, You likely will die. Okay, it may cost you your life. However, you're not a victim anymore. You're now in the work and in, on the team of the victor. And you're coming in to bring his authority to bear there. The question lies before each of us. Just outside your door, across that line, is the, in the suburb of destruction is your neighbor who is dying of slow rot. 
You have the lone cure. I mean, what a strange reality we live in. We actually are in the light. The canopy of darkness is no longer over us. And what have we been entrusted? The lone cure. And what does Jesus say? Go. Take that lone cure to those who are dying. Well, God, you don't actually mean, like, me actually going and doing something with it. Like, you actually think I would actually bring up the lone cure to someone? I mean, they'll be offended by that because I have to basically tell them that they have slow rot. No one wants to hear that, God. So let's just let them all die. You have the solution, and it is the only solution that exists. What do you do with it? So, you have the lone cure. You have been asked by your king to cross the line, to enter that dark district and to authoritatively tell them, in the name of the risen Lord, Savior, and King, to leave their district and submit themselves to the blood transfusion, lest they die. What will you do? For if you stay silent, they will soon die and their suffering will be eternal. So, does God care that you do something? He has commissioned you to do something. The two. So what we've been doing over these past, I don't know what it's been, five sermons, we're going through the praying and the confessing church. We're basically, I've been going through all sorts of different spots in history to show you that in every circumstance in history, there's always twos. We call them sheep and goats. We call them wheat and tares. But God separates out the two. They both seem to know Jesus or call on Jesus, but Jesus says to some, I never knew you. Yet to others, he says, come, enter my kingdom. Oh, they look the same. Wheat and tares grow up looking the same, but there's a difference between them. And God knows that difference. May we know the difference too. So we have the sheep and the goats. We have wheat and tares. But I've been going through all sorts of different twos. Like in China today, we have the three self church and we have the house church movement. In uh, all sorts of different, like in Germany, it was the uh, German church, and then you had the confessing church. All behind the Iron Curtain, there's always two churches. There's a church that's government-sanctioned, and there's a church that is not government-sanctioned, and it's government-harassed. In our culture today, in the American culture, we are very slowly moving into a funny format for our church, where basically we're like the three-self church. As long as you live by the rules here, Christians, as long as you don't talk about this, because that would be a hate crime, as long as you don't actually say that Jesus is the only way, we will leave you unmolested. But I don't want to hear you saying anything to the contrary. We know the rules, and so we know to stay silent, and so we just sort of keep to ourselves. It's our private belief. Well, Satan knows that if we keep our belief private, not only does our faith die, but so does Christianity. The church withers away. Let's not play by the devil's rules. God said, go. God said, preach. You know what generation he said it? He said it in a generation where men and women were being fed to wild beasts, hung on crosses. What are we willing to do? We have a window of time in this country where there still is liberty to preach the gospel boldly. Yep. It will not be appreciated. I can guarantee you that right now. However, we must do it. Two churches, two responses to slow rot. The church that exists in order to subsist, but can only survive one more generation. The way the house church movement in China describes it is they say that the three-self church, which is the government-sanctioned church, 
is like a bird in a cage. It's a real bird. They genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. However, they're not allowed to reproduce. They can't share the gospel. They can't really do anything. (laughs) However, they can still exist and unmolested. However, the house church is the free church. They're the ones that don't care what the penalties are, don't care about the prison sentence, don't care about the punishment, don't care about the death. And what do they do? They reproduce. You know what? The house church movement, though it is illegal in China, is on pace to have more Christians in it at the end of 10 years than we have Americans, than people in the country of America. It's an exploding church, and it's illegal. But what do they do? They speak it, though it costs them their life. The Three South Church exists in order to subsist. That's their only purpose. Why, why are you a Christian? Well, to hang on. But can only survive one more generation. If you don't reproduce, you don't have any offspring. Therefore, it's the final generation of the church. It can't last. Simple rule of thumb, that's how it works in genetics. And the church that exists for the proclamation of the kingdom to go into all the world and preach the gospel, which one are you? Are you existing to subsist? Are you a Christian to hang on? Or are you a Christian that exists for the proclamation of a kingdom to go into all the world and preach the gospel? There are always two, the church that just tries to survive and the church that defies and as a result, thrives. That gets me all excited. There are always two, the church that goes silent and the church that confesses. Which one are we? You see, if you grew up in this culture, you know our propensity to be silent. You see, I can get really loud right here, but would I be willing to get just as loud somewhere where it's not going to be appreciated too much. And some of you are going, it's not really appreciated here either, Ludi. However, the point is, we as Christians live the same on this podium, in that chair, as we do in any other chair and any other podium on this earth. If I change my message, if I become a different man to pander after the approval of another audience because they may hurt me, they may not like me, they may reject me, that isn't Christianity. We need to be the same always. The confessing church, the only real church, is the church that does something. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So he is sending out his disciples. These 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus said to them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. He understood when he was sending out his disciples what the cost was. He understood. But he says, go. I'm sending you. I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you power to do it. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Listen to this. He says it twice in this little commission to his disciples. Do not fear them. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what, what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, whoa, whoa. If we just sort of kept this to ourselves and just sort of had relational evangelism where we just sort of build friendships and just over time maybe could lead someone to Jesus, we'd be a lot safer in this. I mean, some of your model is, is a little cockeyed because you want to, to preach on the housetops. That's the surest way to get us killed that I can think of. Yeah, who's sending you? Jesus was sent and he died on a cross. God says, so I send you. 
do not fear. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you are a confessor, God confesses your name before his Father. If you are a denier, a one that goes silent in the very moment you must speak, well, it says, but whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So I want to talk very quickly about confession. Confession is based in two Greek words. So the first one is hamas, and the second is logos. Logos, typically in the English, we're going to pronounce these different. And uh, logos, we would say logos. And for many of us that know the basics of Greek, we're going to recognize that's the word that's word in Scripture. So Jesus is actually known. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the logos. We understand as the word, and technically we understand it to be Jesus Christ. So it's the word of God in text. It's the word of God in person. So we recognize that word is very important. Well, the concept of confession is Hamas and that. So what's Hamas? It's similar. It's like of similar origin, similar nature, similar movement. So I always picture a mirror. And if I moved like this, what would happen in the mirror? The mirror would move. So the concept is a reflection. So we have Hamas plus Lagos. What are we in stride with? You see, we are to be confessors, which means when the word of God moves this way, what do we do? We move. When the word of God speaks this, what do we do? We speak. You see, we are confessing as the church of Jesus Christ. We are in stride with the spirit, with the word of God. Whatever he does, we do. Whatever he speaks, we speak unashamedly. Will it lead to our persecution? Guaranteed. Homologeo is the word. A verbal declaration of your thorough alignment and agreement with the word of God in text and in person. Whoever confesses me before men, that's our word, whoever's in stride with the word of God before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever is not in stride with my word, whoever, when my word moves this way, they are ashamed of it and pull back, him I also will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well, I think it's pretty clear, even though we might feel a little like a cold sweat breaking out on our soul right now as I'm going through this, we want to be the confessing church. I have a hunch if I were to take a poll in here and I would say, do you want to be the confessing church? I'd say a high percentage of you would say, I do. Could I put a little uh, asterisk on that and say, but I'm scared to death? But oh, we are so weak, so timid, and so, how do we say this, so American. So let's define American. Now, this isn't the actual dictionary definition. This is Eric's definition. The modern definition, inclined toward comfort, ease, self-satisfaction, self-reward, self-coddling, and letting someone else do the heavy lifting for us. I work hard day in and day out to pay someone else to do that. We're Americans. We work hard and we pay someone else to do our heavy lifting. We pay someone else to do our missionary work. We pay someone else to share the gospel. Hey, look, 
I'm an American. Are we Christians or are we Americans? We are Christians. We don't have someone else do our confessing for us. We are each responsible. We are given a tongue. And what we do with that is of the utmost importance in the kingdom of heaven. Passivity begets passivity. Now that's a good, like, uh, it sounds very biblical, doesn't it? You know, so-and-so begets so-and-so. It's the offspring. And you always beget in kind. My children just happen to look like me. You know, Hudson comes out, and it's strange. But it's like, huh, the kid sort of looks like me. It's the same with reproduction in the church of Jesus Christ. If you're a passive Christian and you lead someone to Christ, I know that sounds funny. How in the world do you even lead someone to Christ? However, it happens all the time. We raise Christians in the church. See, we've been in the church, and now we're raising someone else in the church, and what do they look like? They look like we do spiritually. How about me? As a leader, do you know that you're going to end up having a lot of similarities to me in my Christian walk? For good or for bad? And so as a result, we replicate in kind. So I have a few illustrations for those of you that are animal lovers. Golden retrievers, what do they beget? Well, they beget golden retriever puppies. How cute. Eagles beget baby eaglets. Timid Christians beget little timidettes. However, that said, bold Christians beget bold Christians. You know, one of the reasons why we're so timid is we were not begat by boldness. You know that most of us probably weren't preached to? Most of us, someone didn't come out of their way and get uncomfortable and come up to us and say, where's your soul at? And as a result, I'm not saying that's true. There's probably some of us in here, that's exactly how we came. And as a result, you're probably more bold than those around you because you recognize what was needed for your soul. However, most of us don't know what is needed. We are timidettes. And as a result, when we hear a message about being a bold Christian, it feels foreign, like it's a different family down the street. That's not me. I mean, we looties are quiet. That's not true. <laughs> the return of the Christian Christian. That's sort of an inside joke for those of you that heard about the book book. But the Christian Christian. In other words, not just a Christian. If I use the term Christian in this culture... It means something, and it's very bland, and it's almost like laugh-out-loud ridiculous. I'm not talking about that sort of Christian. I'm talking about the Christian Christian. Those who won't take no as a valid answer. For what? For sharing the gospel. Where's your soul at? Do you want Jesus? No. They don't accept that. Do you accept a no for an answer? This is where the title of this message comes in right now. Relentless love. What if the world says, we don't want Jesus? What do we do? Eh, they don't want him. Or do we say, unless you have him, you don't have life. I must pursue you. Relentless Christianity. Pursuing the lost with the pursuit of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit pursue you? Does he knock once and then go, hey, anyone home? Anyone want to know Jesus? No, no one's home. No one wants uh, that, that type of stuff. All right, just checking. The Holy Spirit is relentless. The reason you are even here is because the Holy Spirit has been relentless in your life. Who's moving in? Who's, who's filling this body? Who's the life inside? It's that relentless one. He pursues with relentless love, with relentless kindness, with relentless truth, and with relentless invitation. Is that the way we function as Christians in this world? Do we function as the Holy Spirit is functioning? The Holy Spirit's moving this way. Are we moving with him? 
If he's saying, hey, I'm ready to confess, I'm ready to boldly proclaim what's in the word of God, and we're like, ah, how about you do that? You work on them, I'll be over here. However, he says, I need a tongue, I need some hands, I need some feet. A spirit needs a body. The spirit of God is confessing. He has a message. It's the message of the cross. However, if the body of Christ does not agree with it and does not confess, then that message will not be heard. The Jack Philpot residence. I made up a guy. So the Jack Philpot residence, we show up at the Jack Philpot residence, or maybe I should say a Christian Christian shows up at the Jack Philpot residence. The Christian Christian comes to the door of the Philpot residence. Jack Philpot, a staunch and devout unbeliever, shuts the door in his face with a huff of incredulity. The Christian Christian, now this is where most of us go, all right, we wash our hands and we leave. However, I want to introduce you to the pursuit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Where was I? The Christian Christian goes to the window of the Philpot home and beckons Mr. Philpot to consider the desperate state of his soul. Jack Philpot slams the window on the Christian Christian's fingers with a curse. The Christian Christian sticks his head in through the dog door and begs Mr. Philpot to hear him, but Jack Philpot boards up the dog door with a shout of disgust after supplying a swift kick to the Christian Christian's nose. The Christian Christian immediately climbs up on the Philpot roof and calls down through the chimney. Jack immediately starts a fire on the hearth and sends forth a cloud of ash up into the Christian Christian's face, knocking him off the roof and into the brambly sticker bush on the north end of the house. Jack Philpot loads his rifle and cocks it. The Christian Christian raps with Morse code on the side of the Philpot house. Surrender to Jesus, Jack. Jack, in a fury of rage, steps out and shoots the Christian Christian in the chest. It's a fatal shot. But in the last few gasps of life that the Christian Christian possesses, he whispers to Jack, Jesus died for you, Jack, because he loves you. I will die for the same reason. And then the Christian Christian reaches for his cell phone and speed dials another Christian Christian. And with his dying breath, he groans into the phone. Send another Christian Christian to the Jack Philpot residence ASAP. He's ready to hear. Love has broken through. The Christian Christian dies with a smile of satisfaction on his face. And minutes later, another Christian Christian arrives at the Philpot home, ready to pick up where the first Christian Christian left off. Jack is waiting there, bewildered, conquered, wholly transformed by this divine love. Jack Philpot is ready to say yes to Jesus Christ because a Christian Christian did what they were commissioned to do. How many Jack Philpots have been left to their demise because Christian Christians didn't pursue them? How many Jack Philpots have we in this room left behind because we took their first no for an answer or even the folding of their arms or even their caustic attitude towards Christianity is our answer. Hey, they don't want it. But what if God wants them? Have you ever asked that question? Does Jack know that God wants him? Does Jack know that God died for him? And even if he slams the door in your face, are you willing to go around and get the fing- your fingers crushed with him slamming the window on your fingers? Are you willing to do what it takes to pursue Jack Philpott's soul? The Romanian pastor... So as the story goes, a Romanian pastor was thrown into prison by an evil communist. Okay, this evil communist hated Christianity, and so his way of getting uh, vengeance was to find those pastors and get them into a prison. So this one pastor, like, populated a prison. It's like a prison full of pastors that he stuck there. So if you were the communists and you didn't like this guy, he got on your bad side. 
how would you pay him back but to send him to the same prison that he populated? So this communist bad guy that hated Christians ended up getting sent to the same prison where all these men and women that he had sent were. Could you imagine that? How awkward would that be? Hey, guys. Hey, yeah. Uh, However, how did the Christians respond to him? So this one pastor took it upon himself to pursue him with relentless love. And every day he would come up to him, every spare moment, Jesus loves you. I've forgiven you, and I want you to know that Jesus will forgive you. I mean, just constantly, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And if you don't want to hear about Jesus, it's really irritating. Finally, this communist bad guy blew his stack. He's like, that's it! That's it! I don't want to hear another word! about Jesus, I'll give you one sentence. You tell me what you want in one sentence and then shut up. What would you say if you had one sentence? This is what this guy said. He's like me. And the man melts it. Jesus pursues us. He saves to the uttermost. He ever lives to make intercession. He didn't just die and then go away and say, hey, figure it out for yourself, guys. He sends forth his spirit, the very spirit of his being, to go into all the world and seek to the highways, the hedges. But where's the body? Where's the body that is willing to carry that spirit? That is the cry of relentless love. He is ready to pursue, but are we willing to agree with his pursuit? Pleading, where's the dignity in such a thing? The Jack Pilpot illustration offends some of us. Sort of offends me, even though I wrote it. You see, everything in me that was groomed socially recognizes that that is, I mean, that's badgering. That's harassment. That's not right, Christian Christian. Could you tone it down? You're going to give all of us silent Christians a bad name. Are we willing to all identify with the Christian Christians and recognize that when they get mad at one, they'll probably get mad at all of us? Are we willing to be Christians again? Christian Christians again. So how about this? Where's the dignity in such a thing? There's a dignity to the gospel. That's not how you do it. You come up to them with a track and say, just if you ever get the time, consider reading this. Thank you. God bless you. You see, we know how it's supposed to be done. Even that is daring. Think about that. What I just said is like mortifying to some of us to actually hand out a track. Oh, well, that's, that's so awkward. No, so here's Catherine Booth's response. She's one of the founders of the Salvation Army with her husband, William Booth. So here's her response to the concern about losing the dignity of the gospel and being relentless after someone's soul. By the way, there's a Salvation Army today, and then there's a Salvation Army. The Salvation Army back in the 1800s was something very, very special, and they weren't just about you know, ringing bells and doing humanitarian labor. They were about salvation. And while they were doing it, they would clothe, they would feed, and they would uh, help the orphan and the widow. They did it both. It's an amazing picture. And so this is Catherine Booth and her response to the issue of losing the dignity of the gospel and being relentless after someone's soul. It was a very undignified thing looked at humanly to die on a cross between two thieves. That was the most undignified thing ever done in this world. And yet looked at on moral and spiritual grounds, it was the grandest spectacle that ever earth or heaven gazed upon. And methinks that the inhabitants of heaven stood still and looked over the battlements of that glorious, illustrious sufferer as he hung there between heaven and earth. The Pharisees, I know, spat upon the humble sufferer and wagged their heads and said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Oh, but 
He was intent on saving others. That was the dignity of almighty strength allying itself with human weakness in order to raise it. It was the dignity of eternal wisdom shrouding itself in human ignorance in order to enlighten it. It was the dignity of everlasting unquenchable love bearing its bosom to suffer in the stead of its rebellious creature, man. Ah, it was incarnate God standing in the place of the condemned apostate man. The dignity of love. Love! Love! What holds us back? Uh, Let's just call a spade a spade. We don't have that love. Oh, we have access to it, but we don't really understand that sort of love for Jack Philpott. Let Jack Philpott die. Go to hell. If he's going to slam that window on my fingers, I tried. Do we care about Jack Philpott the way God cares about Jack Philpott? Because God is willing to have the door slammed in his face, the window slammed on his fingers, the ash, the, the kick to the nose out of the dog door, and the bullet to his chest to reach Jack Philpott. The confession of Samuel Logan Bringle. So Samuel Logan Bringle gets up in front of a group and says these words. He says, God blessed the word mightily to others, but I think he blessed it most to myself. Once he said it, he said, that confession put me on record. It cut the bridges down behind me. Three worlds were now looking at me as one who professed that God has given him a clean heart. I could not go back now. I had to go forward. God saw that I meant to be true till death. So two mornings after that, just as I got out of bed and was reading some of the words of Jesus, he gave me such a blessing as I had never dreamed a man could have this side of heaven. Tell us about that blessing, Samuel. It was a heaven of love that came into my heart. I walked out over Boston Common before breakfast, weeping for joy and praising God. Oh, how I loved. In that hour, I knew Jesus, and I loved him till it seemed my heart would break with love. I loved the sparrows. I love the dogs. I love the horses. I love the little urchins on the street. I love the strangers who hurried past me. I love the heathen. I loved the world. Do we understand this? Do we understand what happens with the baptism of love? When God gets a hold of this life and his Holy Spirit moves in, he baptizes, which means to be put in and immersed in something. What is that something? Him. And he is love. Do we understand this? So many of us have such an apathy towards all those things, except for maybe dogs on the list. In other words, we really don't care. Theologically and doctrinally, we do. Do you care about the orphan and the widow? Absolutely, I do, because in James 1.27, it says that true religion uh, will do such and such. I mean, we, we, I care, of course. I, I remember the poor. God cares about the poor. He's a father to the fatherless. I mean, all of these things are in my value system. Do you love and do you care the way God does? And I think it's an indictment on every single one of us. It's okay just to say, I'm missing something. I need that. But can we have this same love? Is it just available to Samuel Logan Bringle? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. It's actually a statement of fact in the word of God. That this love, which is known as the love of God, is shed abroad. Now, I want to do a little work on the word shed abroad so you can understand the grandeur of that word. But it's shed abroad in our hearts by who? By the Holy Spirit. You see, when you come unto Jesus Christ, you receive. You receive in the very exchange his life. 
And his life is that. It's the Holy Spirit. It's known as grace. It is the life of God. And it's eternal. And so as a result, we are given and bequeathed this newness of life in Christ Jesus. We are given the Holy Spirit. And this love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. So here's the word for shed abroad. Echeo. Did you hear that clear throat? It's all huge on the screen. Clear throat. Hail. This is what it means. This is what the Holy Spirit does with this love. To gush forth in great measure. To severely hemorrhage blood as from a spear wound. To burst forth in massive quantity. To dump out in entirety. To break open and spill out. To distribute in great measure. To cascade over due to the vast abundance of substance gushing without restraint into a small vessel. A Niagara waterfall overwhelmingly plunging into a small container. Uh, What would happen if we, the small containers, known as the body of Christ, were to receive this gushing forth, this hail? What would the church look like? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Listen. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Same word. The Holy Spirit has been dumped. Like a Niagara waterfall. Could you imagine a little cup under Niagara Falls? (laughs) You have a little more than you need there. We're the cup. We have more than we need. So what happens to all the excess? It gets on everyone around us. You see, we are literally the vehicles through which God pours out and pours through. Reintroducing relentless Christianity to the church. Christianity that won't take no for an answer, but is like a Niagara waterfall of unceasing love washing over the lives of the lost and dying. Now imagine, in this room, that you have Windsor out there, and we'll call that the cup. And we have the Niagara waterfall. What would this community think if every single one of us spent this next week, 24 hours a day, going to every single person we met and pursuing their soul as if they were Jack Philpot in that illustration? I'm just saying, Windsor, what would happen? We would either become the stench of society overnight, or Windsor would be changed. Uh huh. You see, that's the concept. However, most of us are not prepared for that illustration or that example because we're like, well, I mean, yeah, theoretically, that's true, Eric. Because we don't really want to do it. And some of you are really glad you're here for a conference. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be here. I have to catch a plane. <laughs> the timid woman that became a powerhouse for the gospel. You know that Catherine Booth is one of the most bold proclaimers of the gospel you'll ever hear. If you ever read any of her writings, her old messages... I mean, quite something. She's a little lady, and she was ironically timid. At one point in time, she was scared to talk with someone about their soul. And so just reading it is quite an elixir for us as the church, because what you see is the after effects of what God does in her life. You're like, whoa, look at this woman. She's unafraid. I mean, she'll go through the streets and be pelted by bricks and rotten tomatoes and be rejoicing the whole time. And we're like, who is she? Well, she was a timid woman, just like we are a timid bride to Christ. And it's high time we get a little of what she found. 
Catherine Booth. It seems to me that we come infinitely short of any right and rational idea of the aggressive spirit of the New Testament saints. Satan has got Christians to accept what I may call a namby-pamby, kid-glove kind of system of presenting the gospel to people. Will they be so kind as to read this tract or book, or would they, like, were they not like to hear this popular and eloquent preacher? They'll be pleased with him quite apart from religion. That is the sort of half-frightened, timid way of putting the truth before unconverted people and of talking to them about the salvation of their souls. It seems to me this is utterly antagonistic and repugnant to the spirit of the early saints. Go ye and preach the gospel to every creature. And, the same, and again, the same idea, unto whom now I send thee. Look what is implied in these commissions. It seems to me that no people have ever yet fathomed the meaning of these two divine commissions. Look at them. Would it ever occur to you that the language meant go and build chapels and churches and invite people to come in, and if they will not, let them alone? Go ye! If you sent your servant to do something for you and said, go and accomplish that piece of business for me, you know what it would involve. You know that he must see certain persons and run about the city to certain offices and banks and agents involving a deal of trouble and sacrifice. But you would have nothing to do with that. He is your servant. He is employed by you to do that business, and you simply commission him to go and do it. What would you think if he went and took an office and sent out a number of circulars inviting your customers or clients to come and wait on his pleasure? And when they chose to come just to put your business before them? No, you would say, ridiculous, divesting our minds of all conventionalities and traditionalisms. What would the language mean? Go ye. To whom? To every creature. Where am I to get at them? Where they are. Every creature. There is the extent of your commission. Seek them out, run after them, wherever you can get at them, every creature, wherever you find a creature that has a soul, there, go and preach my gospel to him. If I understand it, that is the meaning and the spirit of the commission. I don't know if we like this lady. I mean, that's an indictment to modern Christianity, for that is an offense. It is repugnant to us to think this way, and yet what she's saying, what we are doing is repugnant to heaven. We have been assigned a commission. Our master has said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, not just to the ones who already call themselves Christians, but to every creature. The bold sprint. So we're going to go back in time. The scene is the battle of Israel against the Philistines in the Valley of Elah. This is the classic tale of David against Goliath. The particulars, it's the 41st day. 40 days Goliath has boasted and the, the camp of Israel has been terrified with fear. Saul is just, he's proven to not have the stuff. So it's the 41st day. David just arrived in the camp delivering bread and cheese and he sees something that for some reason no one else sees. Everyone else in Israel is focused on a big mocking giant named Goliath. But David sees the cause of God. Is there not a cause. I'm not saying he didn't see the giant. I'm, I'm giving an illustration. I give illustrations on David and Goliath all the time. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This is a unique one. I want you to look at this in a unique, fresh lens. So a little imagination is required here, introducing the lost soul. So I want you to picture Jesus is, I mean, David is a picture of Jesus coming against the power of sin in this, in this story in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a Christophany. It's a picture of the gospel to come. And so you have a mocking giant of sin that is holding hostage the little Jack Philpot. Jack Philpot is right behind these tree-like legs of Goliath. And who sees him? David. And so what does David see? A cause. He sees something that's blocking, something that is hindering 
That little Jack Philpot from hearing the gospel, from knowing freedom. So if you look really close and ignore the big boasting giant for a second, you will see a desperate soul behind the tree-like legs of the giant. He is trapped, unable to escape from under the spell and control of the giant. Israel is fearful and considers its well-being of more import than the rescue of the lost soul. So Israel said, hey, look, I mean, we, give our, we stand up against that giant, we die. Yeah, let Jack Philpot go. And so Israel is silent. Meanwhile, David strolls into the camp, the confessor, the Christian Christian. And what does he see? He sees the same thing Jesus saw. He saw us. You know that you had no natural desire to be set free even by David? It's like, what's this little kid doing? You're mocking him right along with Goliath. You see, you have soul rot. You don't even know that you're in darkness until David comes, until David pursues your freedom. So David, on the other hand, is faithful and considers the worth of this lost soul of more import than his very life. So he grabs five smooth stones and boldly sprints. Do you know that David sprinted? The word in the Hebrew is mahar, to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. That's how David went after that soul. In my illustration, I know he went after Goliath. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make up a new story. I'm trying to give you a mental picture of how Jesus pursued us, how the Holy Spirit pursues us. He mahars. He boldly sprints. He moves with liquid ferocity as a lion after his prey to remove that giant, to remove that soul rot so that he could set us free. The giant is already defeated. That's the amazing truth for us as Jesus has gone before us and decapitated the giant. However, there's still this picture that's intimidating to many of us. And as a result, we cower instead of going after the soul. Go into all the world and rescue my sheep. I have not given you the spirit of timidity, but the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Go! Go, Eric! Go, Church of Jesus Christ! Do not Fear this giant. Do not heed his disdain or his mockeries. Relentlessly pursue those entrapped in his snare. Reasoning like heaven. How does heaven reason on this point? Christ bled, suffered, and died for that lost soul, currently crouched defiantly behind the tree-like legs of the giant of sin. And he assigned me to go after that soul. Isn't that an amazing thought to think? Because we always are like, oh, I hope someone reaches them. I hope they hear the gospel someday but to recognize that we, we're the ones that have received the assignment? He picked us. He chose us for this assignment. Is there not a cause? I want you to arrive at that valley of Elah, and I want you to see the Jack Philpot hiding behind that giant. He's even spewing out invectives against you. He's blaspheming God. And yet God says, do you see my child? I want him. I want him. I died for him, Eric. Sprint. But God, I mean... The rest of Israel is silent. They're not doing anything. I don't want to be this wild-eyed guy that's just going to go out and, you know, take them on. Take them on. Where are the Davids in our generation? Do I fear the giant more than I love the lost soul held slave to his power? Even if my bold approach causes even greater mockery from the giant of darkness and the lost soul itself hollers at me to shut up and leave him alone, I am led onward by a higher purpose than social etiquette, but by the mandate to love even unto death. The commission to sprint. Catherine Booth says, they are asleep. Go and wake them up. They do not see their danger. If they did, there would be no necessity for you to run after them. They are preoccupied. Open their eyes and turn them round by your desperate earnestness and moral suasion and moral force. Oh, and make, it makes me tremble to think what a great deal one man can do for another. 
turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. How did Paul understand it? He says, we persuade men. Do not rest content with just putting it before them, giving them gentle invitations, and then leaving them alone. He ran after them, poor things, and pulled them out of the fire. Take the bandage off their eyes which Satan has bound round them. Knock and hammer and burn in with the fire of the Holy Ghost your words into their poor, hardened, darkened hearts until they begin to realize that they are in danger, that there is something amiss. Go after them. Compel them. What a scripture in this parable that Jesus gives. Go out and compel them. You ever thought about that word? Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. What if we were to take that seriously? What is to be done? They have souls. You profess to believe that as much as I do and that they must live forever. Where are they going? What is to be done? Jesus Christ says, go after them. When all the civil methods have failed, when the genteel invitations have failed, when one man says that he has married a wife and another that he has bought a yoke of oxen and another that he has bought a piece of land, then does the master of the feast say, oh, the ungrateful wretches, let them alone. No, he says, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. I will have guests. Go and compel them to come in. What? Am I to let my unconverted friends and acquaintances drift down quietly to damnation and never tell them about their souls until they say, if you please, I want you to preach to me. Is this anything like the spirit of early Christianity? No. Verily, we must make them look. Tear the bandages off, open their eyes, make them bear it. And if they run away from you in one place, meet them in another. And let them have no peace until they submit to God and get their souls saved. This is what Christianity ought to be doing in this land, and there are plenty of Christians to do it. Why? We might give the world such a time of it that they would get saved in very self-defense if we were only up and doing and determined that they should have no peace in their sins. It's okay to acknowledge your need, because I know, going through this message, this is just one of those messages that just shines a bright spotlight on our souls and says, how you doing? Yeah, is that the way we're living? No, this isn't the way we're living. Is this the way I'm living? No, I live boldly for Jesus. The best I know, I live boldly. But when I've been faced with these realities, I'm recognizing a coward in Eric Ludi, and I don't like it. And I want the stuff of this in my life. I don't just want to preach about it this morning. I want it. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes and begin to pray as long as it takes until I understand the fullness of this and where all of you are seeing the reality of this in my life. You mustn't allow the timidity, timidity to remain. Eric, I say, Lord, I can't do this. Jesus says, Eric, will you let me do this in you? Yeah. You see, I, I thought I was going to get off the hook by saying I can't do this. But then God has a solution. It's called the gospel. And he says, well, I know, Eric, but will you let me do this in you? What do I say? Yes, please. I beg for the baptism of love to overcome me. May I have an eternal ache for the souls bound in sin, and may I not be able to ignore these precious ones, forget them, overlook them, or walk by them passively again. For God has not given us the spirit of fear. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's a fact, and I want you to begin to reckon it yours. You have not been given the spirit of fear by God. If you have it, it didn't come from him. But he has given you power, love, and a sound mind. 
King James says he has not given us a spirit of fear. New King James says he's not given us a spirit of fear. NIV says the spirit that does not, the spirit does not make us timid. I really like the phraseology differences between these because they're all saying the same thing. But one says it in a different way. The spirit does not make us timid. If you have the spirit of God, it is not making you timid. It makes you bold, marked by love. So don't claim to have the Holy Spirit if you're missing this, let's say, hey, maybe I don't even have them because this is the evidence of it. God gave us a spirit not of fear. God not, has not given us a spirit of timidity. That didn't come from God. He has given us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. This is something that Philip sent after he saw the notes. He sent this over and he says, I think this would fit really well. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is, this is a doozy. Once, recommend, one, once recommenced, the fruitful agency of field preaching was not allowed to cease. Amid jeering crowds and showers of rotten eggs and filth, the immediate followers of the two great Methodists continued to storm village after village and town after town. Storm them. They stormed villages and towns. Not with like hatchets and axes and clubs. With love. What a strange way to storm a village. Very varied were their adventures, but their success was generally great. One smiles often when reading incidents in their labors. A string of pack horses is so driven as to break up a congregation, and a fire engine is brought out and played over the throng to achieve the same purpose. Handbells, old kettles, marrow bones, and cleavers, trumpets, drums, and entire bands of music were engaged to drown the preacher's voices. In one case, the parish bull was let loose, and in, other, in others, dogs were set to fight. The preachers needed to have faces set like flint, and so indeed they had. John Furs says, As soon as I began to preach, a man came straight forward and presented a gun at my face, swearing that he would blow my brains out if I spoke another word. However, I continued speaking, and he continued swearing, sometimes putting the muzzle of the gun to my mouth, sometimes against my ear. While we were singing the last hymn, he got behind me, fired the gun, and burned off part of my hair. After this, my brethren, we ought never to speak of petty interruptions or annoyances. <laughs> the proximity of a blunderbuss in the hands of a, of a son of Belial is not, a very, is not very conducive to collective thought and clear utterance. But the experience of Furs was probably no worse than that of John Nelson, who coolly says, but when I was in the middle of my discourse, one at the outside of the congregation threw a stone which cut me on the head. However, that made the people give greater attention, especially when they saw the blood run down my face so that all was quiet till I had done and was singing a hymn. Uh, all right. How do you respond when someone sticks a gun to your mouth and says, stop speaking? We're not even speaking to get the gun to our mouth. Are we willing to speak? And when they bring the gun and they threaten, do you respond back with the gospel and with love? That's a Jack Philpot in front of you that God died for. Do you care about their soul? Are you willing to relentlessly pursue them with the love of Jesus, though it costs you your life? You know, if that man's brains are blown out as he's preaching the gospel, what happens to the rest of us? You see, there's a cell phone call that reaches every single one of us, a text, and it says, we need another Christian Christian to stand up right now in his place and keep preaching. What happens to the guy that's holding the gun? 
he drops it. When he sees all of us surround him and say, we forgive you. When he sees the wife of that man come up to him and said, come to my house and I'll give you a meal. What is this? How does the sinner respond to this? It melts them. The power of love is overwhelming. But are we willing to wield it as our chief weapon? You were relentlessly pursued. Now you must allow the relentless Savior to love and pursue others through you. So what's Ray Comfort's advice? I gave Ray Comfort as an illustration last week. I said, spent an afternoon with Ray Comfort, and I was deeply convicted. Every single person that he came in contact with, he shared the gospel. I was just going out to lunch with the guy. We got done eating lunch, and he went to a whole table. This is so opposite of the right thing to do in America. You're in a formal restaurant. He comes up to a, a table full of military personnel and says, hey, guys, sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to talk with you about your souls. In a restaurant! No! So I found myself sort of going, yeah, we're gonna, I thought we were leaving, Ray. I was so convicted because though I am bold in certain situations, I found myself a coward when next to Ray Comfort. Ray, if you weren't here, I'd feel fine. I want every single one of us to be a Ray Comfort and to make others feel the same conviction that I felt that day. So what does Ray Comfort say? Just find a sinner and start practicing. It's that easy. We're like, could you make it a little more complicated so I can come up with a few excuses? The mission of relentless love. If they slam the door in your face, then go to the window. If the window shuts, then go to the dog door. If the dog door is boarded up, then go to the chimney. If the chimney shoots out ash, then start wrapping on the siding with Morse code. If you get shot in the chest with a bullet and your life is fading away, then whisper your love to the sinner and call on one of us to pick up where you left off. Are we ready to be the church of Jesus Christ? Here's what I can say. I don't know how you're doing through this message. Some of you are wishing you left this conference a little earlier than this morning. However, here's where I stand. I may not have this in fullness, and right now I may just esteem it, but right now I'm going to start with that. I'm going to start with the fact that I esteem this as a pattern for the church of Jesus Christ. It does not mean, I mean, there's a lot of balancing things in truth, okay? There's other things that could be equally true as this. But I do not want us to focus on the balancing truths. I want to allow this truth to permeate our being and challenge us to the point of a yes. Yes, Lord. You can have this body, you can have this tongue, and you can send me even as you were sent. I know in and of my own self that I will fail. If left to my own strength and my own boldness, which is nothing, I will not succeed. So I don't lean on that. I go to your boldness and I crave it. I ask for it. I ask for your courage. I ask that you would shake my body the way you shook that room in Acts 4 and that you would fill me with the spirit of boldness, but not just that, the love with which to apply that boldness. See, I don't just want to be bold, yell in people's faces. I want to love them so much that I give them the gospel the very way that they most need it. And if that means I kneel down with tears and wash their feet, if that means I go to their house and knock, and even when they slam it, I go to the window, I say, please, please listen. Please. I know the truth about your soul, and I ache to see you know Jesus. Are we willing to be baptized with this love?
not just gets an escape out of hell card, but to be the body of Christ in this generation, to bring the message of Christ that has saved us to others. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.